Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. So I'm here with a fellow named Scott who has been emailing me relentlessly and informatively because there's something going on in the world that he really wants you to be aware of because it's going to have a big impact on all of us uh, over time. And it's something I didn't really know anything about and always being fascinated by new knowledge. I was really appreciative of Scott emailing me. So I guess I'll, I'll let you get the story going about what the heck is happening in the 80% of trade involved in shipping, shipping this big invisible over the horizon kind of stuff. Well, I guess every now and then with Exxon Valdez, we get a sense of uh, how precarious all this stuff is. But uh, you've been involved in the industry for a long time. And I think you want to sort of, dare I use a maritime metaphor, send up a flare there, but there's me showing my knowledge. Oh, don't of, don't right. go there. <laughs> so um, no, but you want you want people yeah. to be aware of all that's yeah. going on. So let's uh, let's get going with the backstory and and where things are. Yeah. So I, as you know, um, uh, basically, the, it's been coming up in the news recently because of uh, COVID lockdowns. And I know on your show you focus like you had a, the chap on a couple of days ago. Uh, having a discussion about his COVID symptoms, but what really is the focus is the seen versus the unseen, right? And so in, in the UK here, we're, you know, a historic maritime nation. Uh, we're an island. We're completely dependent on the sea still to this day. 95% of all food and energy and commodities and everything come by sea. Uh, so, you know, this is something we all depend on. But in the UK, we in the maritime industry, we call it sea blindness. Um, people have no clue. You know, they think that when they buy a car, it came on an airplane from Japan, <laughs> right? No, no, I thought it was a catapult. But okay, apparently there's <laughs> right. some ships involved. Yeah, so it's not just island nations like the UK. I mean, it's it's the entire world. So for people who are interested in, in sort of free markets and, and history uh, and, and sort of uh, volunteerism and, and things like that, it's a fascinating thing and it's it's a terrifying thing. And, and it's one of those uh, areas where there's a lot of tension that's unresolved at the moment. Um, but it's coming up in the news, uh, particularly in, in June and uh, again now uh, because of COVID. Um, so there's a lot of backstory and a lot of history we can get into if you like. But just oh to yeah, give no, people... I'm 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 all about the deep dives and the backstory. So yeah, take, yeah, take us yeah. on a journey. I had a feeling. Um, so yeah, I mean, basically, uh, just just to give you a, a, a flavor of of the ending before we go to the beginning is is you know, uh, you, you, we've got a crisis now where um, there are uh, basically sixty thousand ships in the world that uh, complete all uh, international trade. There's about 95,000 ships in the world uh, globally, but a third of those are sort of coastal fleet. So that, you know, the big giant mega container ship comes in and then the containers go to the domestic fleet and they're sort of spread uh, to local ports. Um, the the precariousness of, of that sort of uh, understanding of globalism is 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 you know it, hard to explain with a, a bit of history because uh, shit you know shipping technology has changed so much in the last uh, three to four decades that ships are almost unrecognizable from what they were uh, twenty years ago. Um, ships in the last twenty years, okay, the number has grown a little bit. Uh, but the capacity, the car cargo carrying capacity of the world fleet has doubled in the last 20 years. And at the same time, because of automation, uh, the number of personnel on each ship is reducing all the time. Uh, so you've, you see now in Europe uh, ships that are sort of 400 and plus meters long, uh, carrying 22, 23,000 uh, shipping containers. And what would the manpower i dare say mostly men what would the manpower yeah. be in the past as opposed to now with that size ship so the the numbers are hard uh but in the uk i know for example in in world war one uh we could ship we had the largest merchant navy in the world in the uk in world war one uh that fleet was almost entirely conscripted for the war effort so that's why uh after world war one and world war two merchant ships were just destroyed left, right and center. Everything was manual, nothing was automated. So we lost more personnel than the Navy. 
and it was uh, civilian occupation until the ships were seized um, by the state. Uh, so we could in the UK now we have something like 10% of the number of ships that we had in World War One, but the cargo carrying capacity is the same. So and in, it's funny in, how how efficient things can get when you can't force your labour on board at gunpoint. You know, <laughs> then you have a big incentive. Yeah, yeah, press ganging. It was uh, you know went out of fashion, thankfully. Um, but the you know the 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 manning issue. We probably had about a million people at sea back in 1914, and today the UK has 40,000 seafarers uh, to run the equivalent. And but to add the complication, uh, what's happened since World War II uh, in the 50s, um, we obviously got away from the League of Nations. Um, so I know your degrees in history, so you know all about mercantilism and, and the sort of 16th, uh, 17th, 18th centuries. Um, you know, maritime basically created the modern world. Um, you know, we couldn't couldn't go through North Africa. Silk Road closed off for reasons we can get into another time but then people had to go around to get to the far east and that spurred the sort of development of maritime technology uh, in the sort of 1500s onwards and uh, you know the um, I, I guess the point is that there is no modern world without maritime uh, the the maritime technology is linked inextricably with the fate of the world um, well and it's know. sorry to interrupt but so you have the maritime technology and the closest equivalent i think would be airplane technology but given the cost and relatively small number of people who use airplanes relative to the fact that 80 percent of global trade is shipborne uh, i think airplanes have had even less of an impact in sort of world history than ships in the past or even in the present because you know 80% of global yeah. trade is is a huge deal so much of the modern economy is wired into those propellers under the ocean well you look you look at the last 6 months aviation has ceased and the lights are still on there's still food in the supermarket um you know that that little surge at the start of the lockdown we had 6 weeks in the uk where we had a lockdown and there was panic buying uh, the shelves were empty. People were freaking out. You know, I had a friend in Edinburgh. She didn't have eggs for like three months. And, you know, uh, people were really scared. What's going to happen? Now, that feeling of fear, right? Um, the ships never stopped. That was just a little spike in demand, right? What happens if the ships stop, right? The, the airplanes all stopped. It didn't matter. Now, one of the consequences, though, of air, airlines uh, stopping was that the, the crew who are stranded on ships around the world Basically, in Europe, you know, there's sort of two tiers here. So there's the sort of high-tech shipping, and then there's the, you know, the the boring trudging across the Pacific, uh, eight miles an hour for three weeks with a ship full of cement and timber, right? So that's actually the backbone of the whole world, you know, um, and that is basically uh, a different tier of of sort of seafarer now. What has happened in the last six months, tankers haven't really been affected that much. Oil and gas is pretty steady demand. Up, we're back to a sort of recession level that we had five years ago when I left the oil industry. Um, but that's something that the, the tanker industry is used to. They're used to cycles, right? Uh, you can't have fixed costs when uh, you know the cost of the commodity is uh, cyclical. Uh, the, the container ships and passenger ships that people sort of think of, that's like the retail sector. Right, cruise ships. People are worried about cruise ships. That's like one percent of shipping. Right, container shipping is has sort of been dying a death for the last ten years as well, uh, because of the improvements in technology. China came into the market and of uh, shipbuilding sort of twenty years ago. So, uh, your your Sang, Samsung uh, and your Hyundai and all your heavy industries and all that. These guys are all uh, shipbuilders originally. I'm sorry uh, to interrupt you. Your camera's wobbling a little bit. If you could, uh, just when you gesture. Sorry, yeah. yeah, no problem. So, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, digressing slightly, but basically because of the revolutions in, in computing, machine welding, and the, the huge, uh, you know, because there's so much extra human beings sort of uh, in the economy now that China's in the economy and so on, uh, steel became very, very cheap 20 years ago. Uh, at the same time, design and engineering capacity increased, and uh, 
you've got economies of scale because of electronics. So the ships just grew in size so rapidly. They could build a ship in sort of three months where it used to take three to five years, hmm. right? So they're, they're churning out ships faster than they can train a captain now. Uh, at the same time, you've got a massive increase in regulation because uh, to get back to my World War II uh, point, uh, in the 50s, basically, uh, there was only two or three maritime treaties that sort of governed everything. There were five or six sort of traditional maritime nations, UK, US, Norway, Italy, um, and they sort of did everything. After that, we had the UN. We have to get everyone involved, uh, constitution and the law of the sea. Now there's over 50 uh, maritime treaties that uh, people have to deal with. They have to deal with these international treaties at the same time as their flag state. So that's like the home country of the ship, as well as every coastal state that they operate in and whose waters they pass through. So, you know, you've, you've seen this increased capacity, but also regulation has just massively increased uh, and along with it, the liabilities and so on. So let's move over a little bit to uh, this issue of sailors. Oh, they call them seafarers, right? I guess it's seafarers. a combina combination, not just sailors, right? But the mechanics and medics and you name it, right? So 300,000 sailors are trapped at the moment. Uh, let's. Uh, this is one of the most surprising things because I can understand the sort of global slowdown and all that kind of stuff. But how are these guys trapped? Like, What is happening? How are they getting access to dental care, health care? How about prescription renewals? You name it. Like, What is going on that these guys are trapped uh, on their ships? Yeah, so the, you know, these are my friends and colleagues. Um, you know, I, I met my wife on a cruise ship. Uh, you know, it's it's. Um, let's go back to February. Um, so what happened in February? Okay, there's this virus from China. Everyone's freaking out. You know, we got the three and a half percent figure from wherever. Okay, we don't know. Let's lock everything down. Fine. Everyone who was at sea at that time in Europe, Northern Europe, North America, basically did what they call a double header. You do a double trip. So in these developed countries, uh, a typical officer might do um, uh, between four weeks on board, four weeks at home, or up to three months if they're on a big, big ship, and then three months at home. Um, sounds pretty cushy, but when you're working 24-7 and there's no time off there's no days off uh you know the ship never stops um it's, it's very fatiguing so people sort of af if you stay on too long you know you get fatigued you start having accidents and so they they send you home to refresh you so there's two tiers like i said the people in in these high-tech high-end industries uh you know uh oil and gas cable layers etc um and wealthy countries they didn't see much change. They did a double trip. So maybe you did 12 weeks instead of six, or you did six months instead of three. Now, I've, I've done a six-month trip. I'm not going to say it, it, you know, destroys you, but you'll you'll be different after six months. Right? <laughs> um, now, there's the other end of the market. There's the vast majority of the merchant navy is crewed by, regardless of the nation state's ships, they are... Uh, basically crewed by foreign nationals regardless of what the ship is so in the uk there are twice as many uh indian and foreign nationals with a uk license as uh british nationals so the forty thousand seafarers in, in britain figure that i gave you before of that only eleven thousand are british nationals the qualifications are issued to, to foreign nationals to work on various ships because the UK is seen as a sort of trusted uh, qualification provider. What's the driver behind that? So, uh, back to history, obviously, Merchant Navy, uh, after World War II, was pretty hammered. And, um, you know, people came back and uh, they wanted better conditions. So all over the traditional maritime countries, people started going on strike. And this was sort of deemed as unacceptable by government at the time uh, so they brought in something called um, standards of training uh, for uh, and certification for watchkeepers so it's a international convention all the, the sort of maritime nations sort of signed up to it and it okay what they said is we are going to accept qualifications from any country who meets this minimum standard now it was a very low bar uh, for example, they stopped teaching navigators geometry, right? So, you know, 
they then brought in this foreign labor into the the sort of Western market um, to, to sort of, you know, it's a double-edged sword. They needed labor after the war, so it's fair enough, right? Um, but when you invite everyone in, uh, you sort of have no control. And it wasn't so bad for a few decades, but in the 70s, again, there was a lot of strikes in Europe. These people said, look, the conditions are unacceptable. People are dying at work. We need more money, etc." And then they just flooded the market with uh, what were known as cheap crews, which was uh, Indians, Filipinos, and ex-Soviet nationalities who now make up 90 to 95% of all crew. And the reason is they speak English. Uh, you know, Philippines' relationship with the USA, India's relationship with the UK and Soviet Union uh, had sort of heavily subsidized uh, maritime education for, for decades. So they had a massive oversupply of labor, flooded the market. Right. I mean, so it wasn't that they needed labor. It's that they needed labor that they wanted to pay less for. Because that's kind of the old thing. Right. That's, and, and it's not your formulation, but it's a general formulation, of course, Scott, that people say, well, we need labor. And it's like, no, you'll get labor. I mean, you you may yeah, not, just pay. you know, it's just like, I, I need a Maserati. And it's like, yeah, well, you can get a Maserati. You just got to, you know, auction your kidneys to, to do it. So because there's always this thing about, you know, foreign nationals and so on, well, we need the labor. And there's this kind of illusion that if you don't get those foreign nationals, well, the job just won't get done. And it's like, no, you'll just end up uh, paying, uh, you know, 20 pence more for your uh, jam buddies. Right. Right, and the, and the operating costs for a ship, okay, let's let's say, okay, they do have uh, thin margins, right? Some companies operate at a sort of 2% profit, and it's that's that's an increasingly chronic problem because back to the World War One history, when the ships were tiny, you know, they might have been 60 metres long, 7,000 tonne ship, right? A, a, the, a qualified captain like my, myself could... Uh, go to the bank, get a loan and purchase a ship and you'd be in business and the profit from uh, the first ship paid for the next ship and it was a family business, right? So people think of these massive multinational who cares, they've got money, etc. Okay, th those are the high profile, that's maybe 10% of the market, but the average shipping company owns three ships, right? They've been set up in this uh, last 20, 30 years of, of easy money, bailouts, state subsidies all over the world, um, cheap crews, and they're operating on a maybe 2-3% profit margin because they're in a sort of false economy in a way. Um, but now the, the cost of the ships to get to get the barrier to entry, uh, you're talking, you know, the, I think I was on a new build, it was a small, smallish ship, not remarkable, and it was uh, $50 million uh, new build, 150 million, 200 million is not unheard of, pretty pretty common. So the, the, the concept of a free market in the maritime labor sense is, is um, okay, there's elements of freedom in the sense that you're trying to bring all these nation states to a level playing field, fine with that, but it's not really, you know, free market in any real sense um well other than a little bit on the internet it's kind of hard to find these days as a whole so let's get back to these three hundred thousand seafarers so i mean i hate to ask such a basic question but why the hell can't they get off their damn ships so it's it's, it's the 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 polytheism of of the state uh so <sighs> There's 180 plus countries now that are uh, signed up to the, the, the laws of the sea in these conventions. Uh, in February, there was a sort of, okay, we'll accept this. Everybody signed an extension. The people in the better companies, they're getting paid double time. They're happy. I'll do an extra three months. You get to June. Uh, you've got 150,000 people stuck. Airlines are stuck. These companies that are making 2% profit margin, they cannot afford to stop the ship, right? Okay, so sorry, sorry to interrupt. Let's just go back a little bit. So um, is it fear of contagion? Is it fear that they've got COVID on the ship that so they can't small. disembark? I mean, what's uh, what's going Why can't they just get off the ship? I hate to sort of say, I get the flights right. and all that, but... So they, so they fear for the, from the commercial side, there's, uh, you know, you're talking at the bottom segment of the market, the, uh, right, the container ship analogy, you think of like UPS or FedEx or something, I'm going to send a package, here you go, postman, Pat, I pay you my money, you go do your thing, right, I don't care. But you try and try to send 500,000 tons of uh, stone to a different country, right, that's how these people make their money, or cement or aluminium or something like that. They, 
they have these things called time chart involved in the commercial aspects of the shipping. They just say to the ship owner, you make your best speed between here and there. And then the markets, you know, the stock markets do their thing. The traders make millions. The guy on the boat is getting $800, whatever. But the owner has no legal right to stop the ship and say, look, I need to get my crew off because uh, he will bear the cost of that. He, he cannot afford the downtime because he'll, he'll have to pay a fortune in sort of insurance claims and so on for the, the missed cargo at the other end. Uh, also, you've got the other side. So that's the commercial aspect for these low-end operators. The other side is the sort of uh, lockdowns. It varies so much by country. I'm going to try really hard not to name countries particularly, but you, you can look all these things up. Um, you know, ship, if you just type in sort of shipping global updates, you can go through each country, right? And you talk about Byzantine. Some, some of these uh, countries will say, okay, we'll allow a crew change if the ship has been at sea for 14 days and everyone tests uh, negative on arrival uh, and blah, 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 these other criteria. But that, that's the maritime authority of X country. Then the other government department, visas, no, we're not issuing visas at this time, especially for seafarers. People hate seafarers um, generally uh, uh, for issuing visas. Uh, is that because of the cliche of the sailor on leave or something else? Uh, you know, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, you know, I had a, a cruise ship captain and the passengers used to ask him, uh, Captain, is it true that the captain has a girl in every port? And he sort of looked thoughtfully out the window and said, um, I don't know. I haven't been to every port. <laughs> right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's because, you know, places like USA, for example, you get a special Siemens visa. My wife's American, so, uh, you know, I would sort of work in Scotland, fly back to the States regularly because I'm getting a month on, a month off. That shows up as, like, suspicious activity to them because they think you're working illegally in, in, in the country. So they say, okay, we don't want, we don't like people with a Siemens visa because, uh, let's say you're from, uh, you know, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, somewhere, some third world, uh, you know, some poor village in the Philippines or something like that. You get a ticket from your company that you could never afford by yourself. Oh, I'm joining a ship in Florida. Oh, there's the door at the airport. I think I'm just going to walk out the door and go off the radar, right? So that's a risk with seafarers, these un undocumented uh, people. Right, right. So, um, you, yeah, customs and, and so on are very suspicious of seafarers anyway. Uh, secondly, yeah, it, it's, it's just politics of, of, of country. So of uh, in June, when it started getting really bad and people were saying, okay, this could get very bad uh, in terms of safety and in terms of people are psychologically really suffering at sea. Um, and this was half what it is now. In June, they were saying, right, we need to crack down on this and, and encourage. So they had a conference and of the 180 countries, uh, they managed to get 17 to a designate these people as key workers so that they could join and leave the ship but the airlines have cancelled so you're you're having to now pay for a private jet to get 15 guys home from the emirates to manila or from mm -hmm. uk to india so the cost is more than 10 times what it was what your whole business plan was based on right so the average cost of re repatriation went from 300 dollars to 3000 per head Right. Well, and this is all in a 2% profit margin industry, which right. is brutal, right? Yeah. So that so that's the other aspect, right? But then you add on to that the cost of all these... Um, to, so um, these... Uh, the, the I forget what you call it, but basically when the, when the government changes its mind, so you, you get, you get uh, okay, we've got orders, we're going to go to Singapore, we're going to get off... Uh, they've, they've agreed that we've, we're going to go through quarantine. We're going to spend two weeks. Now, the ship owner then has to pay the cost of board in an expensive city for these guys to get off and a charter flight. But then at the last minute, they say, oh, no, there's no there's no space or there's no berth or we've changed the rules or, uh, or one person tested positive on the ship. So the whole ship has to go away for another two weeks, et cetera, right? All that well, kind of and thing. this is not baked into anyone's projections. I mean, it's the old thing in business. It's not what you know that gets you. It's what you... A, can't know, uh, and B, don't anticipate for as a result. And it's these kinds of sudden costs that can eat into a year's profits, you know, in, in a week. 
Yeah, and and the last five years, you know, the the thing that really scared me. So now now we're at. Okay, so June came and went. There was a series of arrests. So the the flag states basically. So part of the the, the maritime labour general problem that happened, as I described before, we started saying, okay, we're going to bring in these. We're going to lower the standards. We're going to bring in cheap cheap crews. Um, but now the the thing is, they've set a new standard, and these people meet the standard, so they start to expect a little bit more money. They they you know these. Filipino guys and these these guys are absolute heroes. I've spent most of my career working with Filipinos, fantastic people, hardworking, you know, uh, smart, amazing people. But they're they're working like eleven months for eight hundred dollars a month. They don't see their family, don't see their kids, and and they're just getting ground into dust by this. And eleven months is is the max, isn't it? I mean that that you can legally work on a ship, which seems to me entirely too long, but. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it really should be three months is the maximum. But they, the the so when when they say okay, we're going to have a convention, we're going to raise these minimum standards. And in the UK, we were like, how is this a minimum standard? So basically, it, this was trying to bring likes of your your China and 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 so on up to the sort of a global minimum. And that's what slows down progress in the maritime industry because you you know the rising tide, you, you have to get all the countries. You can't just do it. So they they said eleven months on board is the limit. After that. If a seafarer doesn't have uh, an, a signed thing to say that he consents to the extension of his contract, and there is a, a airplane ticket or something waiting for him, so this is meant to be emergencies only that this guy's staying on for longer than eleven months. You've now got people seventeen months on board. Ten thousand of these people every day are being not coerced, but basically made to sign a contract extending. Okay, so sorry, seventeen months. Now, I've I've only had one or two jobs in my life where you're on, like when I was gold panning, prospecting in northern Ontario, northern Manitoba, northern Saskatchewan. I mean, you're in a tent. Like, what are you going to do with the day off? Like, watch the bugs. I mean, so you're in there, and it it wears you down. It's hard physical labor because your body also needs time to rest as well. So you've got hard physical labor. You've got psychological isolation. You may not be getting along with everyone on the boat. Of course, that's never going to happen. You miss the comforts of home, your wife, your kids, or whatever, or just a normal life. How on earth could it be possible that people are on there for 17 months plus? I mean, that is unbelievably risky to mind. I mean, not just for their mental health and sanity, but also just for basic safety. Right. So now now we're getting to the, okay, I'm, I'm just going to give you a list of stories that I've heard in the last month, right? Um. There was a case where the the one that stuck in my mind. There was two sailors, and right. So so here's the thing as well. Another part of my job is I analyze accident reports. Problem is you don't you get this information until sort of years later because the ships at sea. There's no witnesses. Nobody sees it. There's no CCTV or anything like that. Mysterious things happen, and it's a very dangerous occupation. Always has been. Right. Now, you know, the, the, the sort of COVID death rate, okay, uh, compared to just being at sea, it's dangerous anyway. You've probably got a 0.1% fatality rate from your job, right? And there's not a single seafarer I, I know who doesn't have at least five or six stories of where they were nearly killed on a normal good day, right? Oh, I mean, I'd have that even just working with the drills in the middle of nowhere. And, and of course, should you get into trouble... Uh, it's not like you're a hop, skip, and a jumping away from an expert ER. No, so I mean, I, I'm I'm medically trained uh, to the sort of level of a sort of nurse, right? But you get like a, a two-week medical course, and that's meant to be good enough for everything. So I can do stitches, right? And then anything else, you you radio a doctor ashore, and they give radio medical advice. Now that's free, but you I've heard literally of uh, you know guys they had a pressure injury to their head you know the crushing injury or something and you know i've heard captains having to do sort of trepanning with a black and decker drill that they've just boiled up in the in the kitchen oh you mean just like relieving pressure on the brain kind of thing just drill into his head and and you get sort of an exemption of uh you know well you know the doctor told you to do it over the radio so you're not liable well i mean to be fair though sometimes when i do a long show i also get a crick in my neck so you know obviously i completely identify with what these guys are going no that's that's brutal stuff that's brutal stuff 
So there was two guys recently, they, you know, I, I don't know what happened, they fell or something, but they broke both their arms, two guys, right? And they, they radioed to shore in a certain country in the Middle East. And uh, all of these countries, so you talk about breaking treaties and Brexit, it's nothing, right? 160 plus of these countries have a legal obligation to provide medical evacuation to seafarers in their waters, all ignoring it. These guys broke their arms and they were told, oh no, you haven't done your 14 days, um, take ibuprofen. And they were four and a half days on board the ship with broken arms before they were allowed to come ashore and get treatment. Well, and again, I'm no doctor, but you've got to get broken bones seen to pretty quickly. Otherwise, they start to quasi-heal in all kinds of weird and dimensional ways. It's not a good day. And, uh, you know, the... the... <sighs> the types of injuries that are being caused by fatigue uh, but but just heart attacks you know things happen a lot of these guys are older that you you can't get ashore for exercise as well you know it used to be you go ashore in the port since 9-11 you couldn't even get ashore in most places but basically you, you're not even allowed to walk alongside your ship if it's in harbor for a little bit of exercise right so obviously you're getting heart conditions the captain died in his cabin uh, recently that was it stick him in the freezer there is a uh, you know uh, sorry, did you did you say put him in the freezer? Yeah, that's what they do. Is it a specialized freezer for onboard deaths, or is it just in there with your with your fish sticks? Yeah, I mean, don't grab the sausages, but yeah, Ugh. it's like it's just your normal freezer. Well, and, and, and I gotta imagine moment. too, and mental health issues, just suicidality. As I mean, the carelessness that comes along as well with people who are just fr frustrated F and exhausted fatigue. with their life. Yeah, so, they, so these accident reports that I, I do, you know, they're all sort of done by uh, government agencies. You get the, the sort of um, report three years later after the fact, oh, it was human error or uh, machinery failure, right? But you're seeing this spate of incidents now, and this is, you know, oil tankers exploding, ships capsizing and sinking. And it's literally, if you're on, if you're on the wheel and it's a storm and you have to turn, something as simple as that, if, if you are fatigued, and the guy says left and you go right, you capsize the ship. And we just had that case that I sent you, uh, the livestock carrier. 42 guys died last week. Um, for that reason, the ship just turned over. Bad weather. Just nobody knows what happened. And and the worst thing, the thing that really sickened me about that was the, the Greenies, the environmentalists, reported it as... Uh, Oh, 6,000 cows died, so we have to um, ban livestock uh, trading. That's as much as I mentioned as that got in the news. 42 oh, nothing men about dead. the 42 guys, just the cows. Uh, you know, one well, let's, let's not go on the greenies. That's probably a whole other yeah. show with a huge amount of mosquito on the camera. So what's the status of shipping and its effects? Because, you know, a lot of people are going to be listening to this like, yeah, yeah, but we're still pretty much okay. But, uh, you know, in some of the links that you sent me, you know, we've got freight tonnage moving through UK ports fell by nearly a fifth. Just in the second quarter, I imagine it's even worse now. And you've got, I mean, is it the same issue with people just not being able to get funding, not being able to get insurance? Um, people wanted to quit the entire business because of the uncertainties about when they're ever going to get something that's not swaying under their feet. I mean, what's happening to the industry as a whole, and you know, I guess to the audience's effect, what effect is that going to have on on the supply chain? So, it it will be, you know, all these problems are solvable. The solutions have been there, uh, but the, you know, there's there's CEOs now who are who are starting to speak out. I saw an article the other day on a very you know respected industry publication. It's now gone, uh, but there's a, a well-respected CEO who was saying. Um, Governments will only respond when the supermarket shelves are empty. Um, and we're coming up on winter now, so it's accident season. People need fuel for their homes, etc. So it, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And as I said before, you know, you, you think you had shortages when there was some panic buying, right? But you think, let's take for one example, just to be silly, not scare anyone, but the, the, all the bananas in the UK come through one single terminal, there's one port with one berth, right? And they, they bring the bananas from South America and they, they don't ripen unless you put them in a special chamber and sort of gas them. So there's like a whole connected thing, right? So let's say what happened in June happens again. So in June, there were six ships basically came to the UK and they were cruise ships and the owner of the beneficial owner of the ship couldn't be tracked down. They, they ran out of money, couldn't pay for repatriation of the, the crew. 
these six ships were arrested for a failure to pay wages, uh, these safety violations, etc. Now you've got the ships on the berth, right? They're stuck there. No other ship can use that berth, right? In Australia, they had three ships. Um, they, they lost all communications power. The owner went, disappeared. They stopped paying for the internet. They had, they had no phones or nothing. They painted on the side of the ship, no food, no money, help, right? The Australian authorities came. This happened three, three occasions in Australia with some uh, coal carriers or something like that. They got the guys off and they basically given them to charity. But there's a problem here is the crew cannot leave the ship and sort of maintain a claim on their lost earnings if they haven't been paid, right? And they can't afford to fly home a lot of the time out of their own pocket. They're just working class guys, right? So you've got this possible cascade that could happen in, in, in many places. And remember what I said before, the ships now are double the size they were 20 years ago with half the crew. So that the the tiny little effect of, oh, let's say uh, one shipping register, one flag state, those people decide to go on strike. So 5,000 people, you, you could be talking literally on strike, you could be talking about 10% of world GDP just being stopped within days, like literally days. And it could happen. Like, and the, the unions, the trade unions have, have been telling, this has been happening. People have been going on strike. So there, and, and, and there's this question, is it mutiny or not? So the, the uh, it's a pseudo military organization, uh, Mercer Navy in most countries, right? Because uh, when, when this all started, it was literally, they just went down to the beach and they were trying to press gang people and they say, okay, you, we need seafarers to fight France or whatever. And they made a list, right? That's called the register. So when a flag state, uh, when you get your license, you're registered, right? So a lot of your sovereign citizens, guys, they'll know all about this stuff. Um, but that's what it is. It's a ship registry. So the nation state reserves the right to seize you, seize your labor and seize the ships, right? But there's a transition. If any state tries to do that, there's some very, very, very uncomfortable uh, periods of time for people and it's going to be in these developing countries in Africa, South America, Asia, some of these places could really hurt bad and the WHO has even said this that they estimate tens of millions of, of, of the world's poorest could easily starve to death uh, this winter uh, because of the economic problems. Um, I, my numbers are probably wrong, I'm not good with that one, but go on WHO and, and, and their website is very clear about this. Well, we've got, I mean, there's one question I wanted to ask before I get to the next one is, how the hell is it possible that they're chained on the ship like they're going to end up as Jack Sparrow's adversaries in some Pirates of the Caribbean zombie movie? How are they chained to the ship in order to get back pay for a non-contract fulfillment? It's a, it's a Leanne, right? So if the, if the ship, for example, or if I say if uh, I've got an oil tanker and I go to an oil terminal and there's some dispute about the cargo and I refuse to pay, well, then they'll just close the port and they'll keep your ship until they pay the debt. What's well, the same? The captain can basically say to the owner, I'm, I'm not moving your ship and I'm keeping your ship until you pay me. Right. So it's property lien. Um, now, but the, the cases that I was just watching a video on YouTube ju just shortly before um, this call, I, I, I should give it to you. You should put it in the in the show notes because it's there's a captain who um, he was a, I think he was a Pakistani national. He was going somewhere and, and basically they had fears of, okay, we're going to this terminal. I'm supposed to have 80 uh, stevedores, so people to come on board my ship that I'm responsible for, legally, criminally, strictly liable for as the ship captain. None of these workers are tested and this is a high infection area. What mitigation do you have to protect my crew if these people are going to come unload my ship? They said unload the ship. And uh, this captain said, I refuse. He lifted up the gangway and he refused any access to the vessel. The dirty tactics, the ship owners of that particular case tried to get him tried for a mutiny, which is punishable by death in Pakistan. The crew, the, the management company telephoned the wives and, and next of kin of the sailors on board and threatened them with mutiny charges, threatened them with, we will stop paying your husband, 
you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, real dirty stuff, right? So he just he just went on strike. He ended up going uh, somewhere else and, and sort of getting a place of refuge and they calmed down because they have no legal right to say that he's a mutinying because the responsibility for the safety of the ship still rests with the captain. Now, the trade, the international trade union, they and the ITF, they've been saying for three months now that if any captain believes that his crew is at risk for uh, COVID or at risk of injury due to fatigue, he has the legal right as the master to stop the vessel, go to anchor and, and go on strike and stop work. And the fear is that CEOs are really talking about this because they, they're being asked to, to sort of get these people to sign these extensions, 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 months beyond the legal sort of thing, uh, legal limit. And the guy on board, he doesn't really have a choice. Like he's he's making six hundred dollars a month. He's he's maybe got four or five kids at home who depend on this money. If he says no, I'm not signing an extension. Well, it's not like he it's not like they fly him home business class the next day, right? He's got to sit on the ship until God knows when. They can so get he him might off. as well work, right? Right. Otherwise, he's there for no reason, off pay, and he'll incur a debt. He'll have to pay for his food. Right. So so you've got this situation where it's just a complete stalemate. And, and you know, the, for all the, you know, I, I don't want to be too cynical about, about governments because the international effort uh, is... This is the is, one show where you can be entirely too cynical about governments. Just wanted to mention it's, that. It, it, it's not, it's, it's hate the game, not the players. I mean, people really care about this and, and, and the sort of heads of, of uh, the International uh, Maritime Organization, it's the, it's the UN agency that's, that governs all of this. They, they have for months been calling this a humanitarian crisis. They've really, really tried, but they they have no power. And and the the nation states that are doing these things, they are completely out for themselves, right? They, they, and this kumbaya, you know, everything is is fine when times are good, but when times are hard, everyone's out for themselves. And they don't care if they grind these people into the dust because they are not voters or taxpayers in the mm. home nation. They're all foreign labor. There's something else that troubles me too, Scott, which is every industry like if you've never been a manager you don't realize just how important it is for people to want to work in your industry because you need a conveyor belt of new people coming in because you know people quit they get old they get injured they decide to just do something different they you know go join the peace corps or something like that so you constantly need this conveyor belt of new people coming into the industry otherwise the industry goes into kind of a death spiral and if the working conditions are getting so unpleasant so difficult so dangerous um where are like who's going to sit there and say oh i can't wait to ship off to sea and and join this this merry crew i mean that seems to me it's well, one of these things and once people are out it's really tough to lure them back in yeah i mean in the european nations this has been a big crisis and you know and this is the other division because if you read the maritime press, okay, all these things are happening, right? I could I could just share a window right now and I could scroll, you know, if anyone just types, you know, marine fleet accidents, right? And you just go through the news, it's every two days, there's a complete disaster, right? There's a, a ship completely destroyed or lost on average once uh, every two and a half days. And that's is that that's up this year, I would say. That's assume. twenty that's twenty nineteen. Oh, that's 2019. last year. Okay. And that's this that's the safest year we've had in shipping ever. Right? So but what the people I really listen to are the insurance companies. So if you if you type in big, you know, marine insurance companies, I don't want to name names obviously uh, on your on your show, but uh, they, they do these uh, annual sort of safety audits. Now the marine insurance industry the ships have been doubling in size every year, but the premiums are based on historical data. So they've been underfunded and unprofitable for the last five years. They're they're bricking themselves right now. They're really afraid. And they have published public documents saying, we believe that the claims resulting from this year and, and the resulting safety decline next year could wipe out the safety gains of the last 20 years. And then we're gonna go back to when I started at sea you're losing a, a ship every day, not every three days, right? So, it, well, and what's going to happen to the financial viability of these insurance companies with this level? Of if you can't, if you can't insure, what what do you do? There's there's no. I assume and, that and this, sorry. I assume that there are requirements for ship insurance. 
uh, in the same what, way that there are car insurance. So. And so yeah. if the insurance companies, while well, they're going to need a big bailout or they're going to have to radically readjust their rates based upon increased risks and dangers. And of course, also, if you've got a lot of people cycling out of the industry, you've got people cycling in who have less experience, less uh, training and so on. And so if you can't insure these companies, uh, sorry, if you can't insure the ships, the ships can't really sail, right? Potentially. Potentially, no. It'll vary. It'll vary nation state by nation state. Now, you, you're like me. I'm, you know, I'm I'm Scottish all the way back to the flipping Mesolithic era. So I've got that amygdala that you have, where we sort of extrapolate to the the worst possible case. Right. So, so it. But it, it, I don't think that will happen because you know it is pretty. Like as you say, um, you know, you just adjust your prices. People pay more. You know, uh, so so. All of these problems are solvable, every single one of them, and, and it's known how to solve them. And the, the, it's never been better. But all you get in the marine press now is uh, we have to decarbonize everything by 2030. Uh, you, you, we're not allowed to pour a cup of water in the sea. Uh, we need to get 50-50 women in maritime. <laughs> uh, you know, why? You, you know, that, that's what they're pushing for. And, and you get these long articles. How do we get millennials to go to sea and you're like so out of touch it's not even millennials anymore you know what i mean it's like what, what are you on about you know and and i've had this argument my entire career because when i when i went to sea there was no internet there was no electronics there, there was nothing you didn't phone home you know uh, there's no telephone i've seen a few months right fine and but the what people don't understand right these old guys who've been at sea they grew up in that time they are not fussed about these people who are suffering because they well back in my day I would sign up for two years and we'd be gone and it's like yeah but you could have your wife and family on board and you had half the duties because there were less regulation and you could drink alcohol that's gone when you went to port you were there for three weeks not three hours and you, you could go ashore you, you know uh, it, it's a different ball game and the stress was already bad for a lot of people you know and, and because they've got these international standards it's a race to the bottom for for the living standards on many places and and again the dirty handed tactics as, as soon as the union spoke about okay you're legally entitled as the ship captain to go on strike etc uh, some less reputable owners started cutting off the one lifeline people had telephone and internet and just saying you're not allowed to phone home or you're not allowed to phone other ships you're oh, not so allowed to if, post on social media call to say they're going on strike they can't go on strike Wow. Now, let, let's just before we, we close off, and I really, really appreciate this information. There's there's two sort of topics uh, for me. So one is this very, very big picture topic, which I sort of wanted to submit to your your expertise. So if there is some sort of clawback in international shipping, I mean, other than you know, obviously you can't grow bananas in the UK or anything like that, but I can see there being some real benefit to this. Because then you get more localized manufacturing. The Rust Belt begins to uh, get all polished up with new jobs and all that. I can see some real benefits because this general international race to the bottom for price and labor and all of that has been pretty pretty rough on a lot of first world manufacturing jobs uh, and so on. So I am ambivalent. You know, I get the whole economy is set up this way and changing it is really, really tough. But I can see some real benefits, particularly in Western countries, to there being some reduction in this uh you know international shipping stuff and get more local manufacturing what are your thoughts on that that's that's what makes me feel sick to my stomach every day is, is which way is it going to go you know because in his, historically yeah okay we need a correction but that hasn't happened since um the 1800s where they just let things happen you know the the what's happened in the 20th century is they seize everyone's property and people like me who is it's a reserved occupation you're conscripted you're now in, in the military on you go and so it, it but it depends you know when you're going to get into philosophy it's, it's this thing of we've tried to treat every country the same we've tried and this is one of my questions for you steph was uh you know there's this tension between universalism and consent right and i'm all for free markets but i don't understand in shipping because you've got this dichotomy where um, ships can change their flag, right? So statists hate this. They call it a flag of convenience. And um, But free market people love it because likes of, uh, I, I'm an American ship owner, let's say I own property, I own a ship. It's just like any other piece of property and I just want to do business. 
I will go to the country that charges me the least tax to fly their flag, right? And and people and I will not raise my standards. I I will go for the country that doesn't care about greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the people who hate that, they're trying to drag everyone up to this very high European standard, not caring about the opportunity cost for people who can't meet the barrier to entry. But at this at the same time, it's the only thing keeping the world going. Right. So, for example, you might have 20 uh, percent now of the container fleet of the world. The beneficial owners of those uh, ships are Greek nationals. They live in Singapore. The company's registered in, in uh, India. They've got an office in the UK it, it, and it's all sort of uh, they're very smart people because, it, for example, if you have an incident on one ship and it's a safety incident, then any government could say, right, you stop this class of ship, this company stops trading until we sort out the thing. But because it's each ship was sort of run as an individual corporation and you have to go 15 steps to find the beneficial owner, uh, they can actually keep trading. Now, people hate it, but this is actually what the the globalist modern economy is based on. And it's uh, self-defense, in my opinion. These people are just desperately trying to protect an industry that is brilliant and it has built the modern world and and there's no doubt that there are seven billion people alive today because of it i mean the maritime industry is the global economy and people talk about the, the real economy versus the fake economy that's that's why people go to sea they love it because it's real right there's no nonsense you know and it's you know like you say it's it's three percent female officers or something like that and even the women who are at sea they're the kind of people that love it because it's away from this you just think oh, you mean I don't have to go to university for seven years and then sit in an office for the rest of my life. Thank God, I can actually go drive a boat. I, I can play with a chainsaw. I can drive a crane. You know, it's 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 like it appeals to a certain type of person. So that there's always going to be those people who are willing to sort of sacrifice time and 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 so on, especially when they're young. Um, but the owners and so on, the and 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 the people who want to destroy all this, they're so far removed from these people, these three hundred thousand people now who are being ground into the dust. And the other thing is that the people who are at home, so every one of these three hundred thousand who's at sea now suffering, you know, suicides are through the roof, self-harm is through the roof, depression's through the roof, uh, accidents are through the roof. These all have a counterpart at home who has not been paid since February and they have been unable to join a ship. So this is your skilled labor force. There's only 1.8 million people qualified to do these jobs uh, in the world, right? You've got 600,000, that's a third of the people. Half of them are either suffering right now and 300,000 counterparts, do, do you think they're gonna sit and wait till this all shakes out? No, they have to work. They're going to find something else to do. They're going to get a steady job somewhere else. And part of the reason I think that a lot of nation states are scared to deal with this topic and why I'm so grateful to, to, to bring it to your audience is because if they just look under that lid, they don't know what's going to happen. And yes, it will adjust. There's a, Every cloud has a silver lining, but those are days and months and years to live through. Well, okay, so so let's uh, let's go, I guess, to the final topic, which is, uh, I guess, we can put on our dour Anglo-Saxon disaster helmets, and um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah so uh, uh, suggestions for my audience, and hey, let's. I, I'm never that bad at that. Uh, I'm never. I never regret entertaining the worst case scenario, as long as you don't sort of dwell <laughs> on it. But no, I mean, because you know, it's the uh, old thing. Like, yeah, get some food in your basement. Let's say that you're wrong, and there's no interruptions. Well, you just get to eat your mistake, right? That's fine. So, what is it that you're doing? How do you think it could shake out negatively? And um, what do you suggest to my audience? Yeah, I mean, so the first step, and I, I'm really glad we've had this conversation and, and I didn't know how it was going to go. I was nervous. I really wanted to do this justice because outside of the maritime world, nobody knows about this, even though the New York Times has covered this. You know, this is in on MSNBC, this story, but they are not really going for the, the human component, you know, people with tumors, uh, people with, you know, they can't get off. And, and talking about it i hope is the first step because it's a really difficult thing for it's such a specialized thing and you know a lot of your free market guys they've 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 read books about economic history they know all about the mercantile trade and and so on but they don't know anything about shipping today 
So how do you spread that message? And now the other side, the positive side, is tech, blockchain. So a lot of a lot of uh, the problems of the maritime industry is because it's regulatory capture. And so I'm really hopeful that blockchain is 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 uh, you know that's been heavily adopted by the container uh, industry and it's massively revolutionised things there already. Um, and I think once we bring that into credentialing and qualifying people and and sort of making information not a scarce resource and and removing bottlenecks, then you've only got the physical bo bottlenecks to deal with. So maybe you've got some smart people who who know more than I do, but I think. I, I just I just want people to talk about it because because I when I don't when I read these stories of ships blowing up every day people just getting killed and it, it's not on the news and people are saying well you know I can't get my hair cut because of the lockdown or or something <laughs> uh, you know I it's I, I feel sick to my stomach you know and I I don't know what the answer is but all right worst case scenario <laughs> hit me. <laughs> It's, it's going to happen in some places. This is going to happen is, is uh, you know, people forget like the Arab-Israeli war, for example. So there's, there's physical choke points around the world, right? The ships are bigger now, so they're deeper, right? The waterways haven't changed size. So it, if you, the Arab-Israeli war, there was a few uh, ships sunk in the Suez Canal. Bang. The Eastern Mediterranean is now cut off from Asia. And that was for like 12 years. They couldn't unblock it, you know. Um, you, you've got sort of 10 of these choke points around the world. Let's say uh, one country that's maybe unstable. Uh, what's the one that had the explosions in the port? Oh, Beirut. Beirut. That, they know, caught, yeah. that was in the news again today. That the um, Another chemical fire broke out there. Um, that's a prime example of uh, one accident in a harbour, 800,000 people are homeless now. God knows what sort of cancer and stuff are gonna get from the fumes and businesses gone, right? That's just one port in one country, but you think that's that's port's been out of action for weeks now, the economic ripples, right? Let's think of another country. Let's say, um, you know, uh, what's, a, what's a good example? Um, Russia, right? Half of their ports are icebound uh, for most of the year. If they get one port that's that's sort of free in the winter, let's say, and uh, some seafarers are there, they're, maybe they're from Bangladesh, Indonesia, somewhere like that, they're paid $200 a month and they haven't been paid for six months. And they just say, no, we're down in tools. And the ship is blocking the berth and you've got backed up traffic all the way through Istanbul, through the Turkish Straits. To, like, I mean, I, it's incalculable, incalculable what, could happen now i don't think it'll ever get to that because we we know that people don't hesitate to use force in these situations and and, and they'll do things like that but the the there's this divide between the people who are in charge of these things and there's a wide gulf that separates them from having any sympathy for the actual what's what has been described as a humanitarian crisis that's happening now i pray to god we don't get to that that what could happen but there are I mean, there are potentials for, you know, significant interruptions in the food chain. And I would, you know, I, I would recommend, we'll, we'll put all the links in the show notes and send me anything that you haven't sent me that you'd like me to add. But uh, we don't know. And, and why should we? You know, I mean, we don't know where our electricity comes from in any fundamental way. We don't know where our water comes from in any fundamental way. We only kind of notice when it's not there. And the amount of life-saving, life-sustaining, as you point out. The world population has largely increased as a result of the efficiencies or predatory aspects of the shipping uh, industry. And so if there is, and it all runs on people, we can say automation all we want, you still need some people on there. And if people don't want to work there, if people uh, get sick, if, they, if it becomes too dangerous and so on, then uh, there is more of a race to the bottom, getting more unskilled people, getting more people just stuffing them into, you know, it becomes a, a sort of spiral, a literal death spiral at that point, or it begins to diminish. Now, if it begins to diminish, there's going to be a lot of economic dislocations. And that's, you know, a nice way of saying, you know, people are going to go through some really rough economic times as things adjust. I mean, yeah, you can say it's, it's good in the long run, but uh, it's not something that people want to go through in the in the short run. So I do have concerns when you look you know, look around your house, look at the number of things that are made 
you know, in truck driving distance. Look at the number of things, especially with borders now closed. I know that trade borders in the U.S., sorry, U.K. and sorry, U.S. and, and Canada are still open. But, you know, you, you're kind of, we're all hanging by a thread and that thread uh, runs over the sea. And when that gets threatened, things can get pretty bad. So I've got an analogy for you. So my, so let's say there's, okay, so in North America, 80% of everything comes by sea at some point, but it's the wrong way to think of it. Look at one object in your house, right? So even if your laptop is manufactured in, in USA, 80% of the, the, metals and plastics and, yeah, yeah. and the energy to produce it came from somewhere else by sea right anything you look at in your house and 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 what people don't understand is how dependent we are on each other now you think here's an analogy there's seven billion people in, in the world who depend on sixty thousand ships for 80 percent of everything and it's often said in shipping that without shipping half the world would starve and half the world would freeze and the reason they say half People don't understand that, you know, everyone's so worried about uh, sea levels rising. The reason is, is because 50% of all human beings live within five miles of the coast. The reason that is, is because it makes trade more efficient. The, the, the car, you know, the tons per mile of carbon of shipping is more efficient than any other form of transport because the buoyancy does most of the work for you, right? Now, people don't live in the woods and the mountains in Mongolia, right? They, they live near the coast because that's where you can live because of trade, right? My town, I live in a small sort of working class town in Scotland. There's 60,000 people in this town. Now, just to illustrate how <clears throat> vulnerable, imagine that 7 billion people on earth depended 100% on every person in my town personally driving things to them in their car. <laughs> right. And that, that's the level of, of sort of bottleneck that, that we're talking about, you know, um, and all your theories about, oh, the stock market's up, oh, the stock market's down and all that. It depends on reality being fulfilled. Right. Okay. Well, listen, I really, really appreciate the conversation. I really, really appreciate the information. I will put links that you suggest and the ones that you've emailed me below. And uh, yeah, keep your eyes peeled, man. And if there's more that comes up, please, uh, please let me know. And, and thank you so much for your time today. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you. And, and uh, you know, if you get any advice on how to expand the, the message and so on, I'd, I'd love to hear it sometime. We'll share as best we can. All right. Thanks, man. Cheers, mate. Bye.